Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. Uh, this is an outgrowth of Meltdown Comics and Collectible and the Pop Sequentialism blog. And we are very, very happy to have as our first guest on the program somebody that I think is undeniably one of the great creators in comics of the modern age. A big round of applause for uh, Mr. Brennan McCarthy, who got his start with uh, British Music Weekly Paper Sounds back in 1978 in the era of punk rock in Britain, followed by a 2000 AD stint, and then finally spearheading what we would call the British invasion of comics today with, uh, Peter Mc- uh, with Pete Milligan, and developing characters such as Paradax, Rogan Gosh, and Freakwave. But uh, not to be forgetting, of course, the great contribution to the reboot of Shade, which helped shape the Vertigo comics imprint at DC Comics, and uh, followed with Skin. We're going to uh, big round of applause. <laughs> so, Brendan, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Matt. Um, let's talk a little bit about how you first got involved in comics and uh, your your stint in art school and, and how that all came to shape around the era of punk rock in Britain. Mm. Yeah, that was a very exciting time when um, the whole sort of this, the kind of 60s establishment was getting overturned by this raucous new energy that was coming up, largely um, instigated by the Sex Pistols. Uh, I was studying at Chelsea School of Art, uh, studying painting. At the time, I was drawing, doing really big, huge kind of um, comic book type paintings and uh, kept getting lumped in with uh, Lichtenstein, which was really annoying because that's all people could ever think about. Um, The punk energy um, made me want to stop painting and actually get some material out into the marketplace uh, with a comic strip. So I wanted to do, if you like, the first punk comic. And uh, there was an opportunity, as you pointed out, in the magazine Sounds, which was had a punk rock leaning. It was a music paper that covered all that stuff. So I pitched them a comic strip and they took it. And that was my first published work. That's kind of a a difficult, I think, for people to understand now with uh, the easy availability of counterculture uh, magazines, publications and comics, just how different that would have been in 1978 Mm -hmm. in the UK. And punk, of course, grew out of the whole Thatcher Britain type of uh, government and I'm sure that that influenced heavily the work that you were doing Yeah. but um, what was it like in art school at that time and how did the punk rock thing develop into comics? Well the Sex Pistols played their second gig at Chelsea School of Art so I saw (laughs) their second gig and you know um, punk rock just happened down the road because we were located on the King's Road right? and uh, Seditionaries at Malcolm um, and Vivian's shop was down the bottom of that uh, the, the famous King's Road. Yeah. So punk was, was really there, like really from the get-go. It was, it, I was very aware of it. And uh, I just jumped into it. It was really something exciting and different. Uh, also, punk relate owed its out, also outgrowth to stuff like the very early Rox, Brian Eno Roxy music records and David Bowie doing Aladdin Insane. And so it was coming from a space that I liked. And um, it was also eradicating and removing away all the denim-clad you know, progressive rock stuff that was being pushed aside. So it was a great chance. Uh, I was very influenced by Jamie Reed's work, who did all the Sex Pistols uh, artwork. Right. And i got to tell you, um, you know, the Sex Pistols were a huge influence. I really enjoyed the Sex Pistols enormously. They didn't last for very long, and, yeah. but they really burnt bright. Yeah, the the interesting thing, too, when you think about, you talk about, you know, was it Viva La Rock, the, um, what was the shop that McLaren had um, in the in the neighborhood then? that you look forward maybe only five years and you look at the New York scene and you mm. talk about pop art and how comic book inspired images uh, started to 
become a new thing. And, and like you say, not the way that Roy Lichtenstein had mm. done them, mm. but when you look at the street artists, whether you're talking about Keith Haring or you're talking about Basquiat, mm. that they had yeah. both completely co-opted the, the imagery of their time, but also the music in New York was also mm. so pervasive that it was impossible to avoid in any any part of pop culture. Yeah. And so surrounded by the imagery and the sounds and then the political climate, as this moves forward, you kind of take it in a different direction, an almost whimsical direction with the with the first comics that you did outside of two, 2000 AD with Freakwave and Paradox. Mm. And it's funny, and we'll, and we'll definitely get into that, but it's it's easy to see looking back now, and, and of course currently you've got Mad Max Fury Road in cinemas, um, a film that you co-wrote, and it's very much built on the back of that punk rock apocalyptic idea, which mm-hmm. is very much also birthed out of Thatcher's England. And to go back and see that there's also quite a bit of optimism in this, what people may see as a, nihil- a nihilistic or narcissistic um, car chase film, that it has these really grand big ideas mm-hmm. that I think we saw the seeds planted for in some of that early comic book work that you were doing. So let's talk a little bit about Freakwave and how that evolved. Yeah. Um... Uh, what's what's peculiar now is that when people see Freakwave as a Mad Max go surfing concept, which is what it is, they just assume it was lifted from Waterworld, which is uh, <laughs> uh, that's pretty baffling because Waterworld came many years after Freakwave. Um, but uh, Freakwave came from I uh, uh, from me travelling around the world and ending up in Australia for a while. Um, I, uh, when I was about 20, I think they call it a gap year now. It was, I just basically had left college and had a, had a few bob in my pocket and I thought I'd like to go and just go and see the pyramids, maybe, you know, go to India or whatever. I'll go up the Himalayas. In fact, I did all that stuff, which was quite quite fun. Wow. And um, uh, when I arrived in Australia, I, I, I at the time, surfing wasn't a big thing. Now it's huge, but then it was totally a subcult. Nobody knew much about it. It had died out with the Beach Boys. But when I started going around some of these Australian coastal villages, there was all this surf scene going on, and it was people living in VW combi vans and, you know, their shaggin wagons, as they used to call them. Yeah. Um, uh, all that sort of stuff. So that the surfing culture in Australia made a big impact on me. As something I thought, well, that's interesting. Nobody's explored that in comics for sure. Right. And um, then I, when I saw Mad Max Two at cinema in this is nineteen eighty one, actually in a cinema, I just walked into a cinema and saw it. It so blew me away that I was sort of traumatized for about five years, um, and it had such a big effect on me. I just wondered, how do I put Mad Max with? I just sort of had this desire to redo Mad Max, so I put it <laughs> together with surfing and created Freakwave. And um, a friend of mine from another art college, Peter Milligan, who had studied at Goldsmiths College of Art under Michael Craig Martin, who was the guy responsible for um, the uh, young British art movement with um, Damien Hirst, etc. Wow. His, he, so he was a strong conceptualist, uh, and that's where Pete Milligan got his training. So when myself and Pete Milligan combined with Freakwave, we were able to bring sort of like a, a sort of fairly sharp sensibility to it, which also was quite punk-influenced. Um, I had seen Mad Max 1 at a double bill in what's called, um, I think you had it over here as well in America, called the Midnight Screenings. Yes. Well, in England, these I think it's the same over here. They used to take place in porno theatres or grindhouse theatres, I think you call them, don't you? Mm-hmm. And um, so we would go to the porno local porno theatre, because that's in those days, you used to get porn theatres in the middle of the high street <laughs> showing movies. You'd expect because, that in Knightsbridge previously, well, right? but... This is pre-video, pre-DVD, yeah. pre-digital. So the only way you got to see uh, an art house movie was that some some enterprising young hippie or so would rent the twelve o'clock screenings at night, midnight, Saturday night, and they'd show double bills like Eraserhead was a staple, and but so was Mad Max, wow. The Hills of Eyes. These kinds of movies would play. You know, you get different combinations of them. So I saw Mad Max with a double bill with the cars that ate Paris, Peter Weir's uh, bizarre uh, car movie, Australian car movie. So I saw these Australian car movies together, and uh, that was what's now called as Ausploitation, but by two of the seminal directors of the Australian Revolution in cinema, George Miller and Peter Weir. So when I saw Mad Max 2 was on a few years later... Of course, released in the US as the Road Warrior. (laughs) Yeah, Road Warrior. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
well, I went to see that. I, I knew I had seen Mad Max 1, which I'd liked, but it hadn't blown me away or anything. And then number two absolutely destroyed me. Yeah. And um, uh, began a quest of hanging around the offices of George Miller when I, you know, and look, looking through the windows. And even one day when the door was open, I managed to walk in and talk to the writer of Road Warrior, Terry Hayes, who was very nice. Mm-hmm. Never got thrown out or anything. <laughs> But I never, I, strangely, I missed meeting George Miller. I could never quite be there at the right time to meet him. I met everybody else, though. And um, so uh, Mad Max was a very big influence, and uh, I took Freakwave over to L.A. My first trip to L.A., I tried, you know, I was so naive, I didn't know anything at all. So I was, um, I won't tell you what I did in my naivety, but um, <laughs> it was uh, very green. Uh, anyway, the thing is, I didn't sell it as a film, but I did sell it as a comic strip. And that then led to strange days in my American career. So it was it was a fruitful journey in the end. And so was that out through Pacific Comics? That's right. Yeah, there's Pacific, who then I think became Eclipse Comics. Yes. And uh, they, in those days, what was great is you could get full page rate and you could own all the rights to your work. Yeah. Which was fantastic. So uh, I'm one of the few artists, you know, who's I've, I've always insisted on owning the rights to my stuff, if if possible. Now and then I'll throw one their way but generally I keep all the rights to my own material um, which I think is a sensible thing if, you, if you're a comic book creator these days anyway yeah certainly there's been a lot I think especially now with uh, the Avengers second film coming out and there being that visible placard based on characters created by Jack Kirby mm, and mm. Stan Lee uh, that there's been discussion uh, especially among artists but um, people who know the comic business know what Jack's contribution was and to not have seen it until this film was was sort of um, a big point of contention. The the Kirby family did come to terms with, with Marvel Entertainment and certainly are getting some compensation now, which is fantastic. Yeah, great news. Yeah, and, and there was a long time, and I've spoken to people like Steve Bissett about this, and I'm sure we'll have him on the podcast, mm. uh, about just how... I think at DC, the first people to be given the type of deal where they would get ownership of characters was that Alan Moore, Steve Bissett, John Tottleben uh, partnership, where they were bringing in a readership to a comic that was almost canceled, but that um, Upstart Comics... You know, people like the the people at Pacific, the people at Eclipse, um, you know, up in Canada, you had Dave Sim and Aardvark Vanaheim, who was really kind of a self-publisher mm. who allowed other people to publish with him. And, and then later, Kevin Eastman at Tundra, Steve Bissett with, um, with his Spider Baby Press. They allowed people to maintain creative control because they'd worked in an industry that didn't give it and right. didn't give it freely. So it's it's interesting that this is becoming a topic again, that there are a lot of people who are trying to bring their vision to you know, a large audience and, and think that their only recourse is to bring it through a major publisher. And we're finding, of course, that through things like Kickstarter, that that's not necessarily the mold anymore. So it's, uh, it's refreshing to see that even back in, uh, this would have been 1981, that um, that you were able to get that type of freedom and and which I'm sure made the best of Milligan and McCarthy, which came out through um, Dark Horse, a possibility. Yeah. That otherwise these rights would have been tied up with so many different yes. entities and yeah. for so amount of time that it wouldn't have been possible to even publish prior. Yeah, that was very easy to deal with with Dark Horse, who published that collection, um, the best of Milligan and McCarthy, uh, because we owned all the material. Yeah. And a couple of places where we we didn't. Uh, permission was very easily given by DC for the shade covers and rebellion for the sooner or later sections we used. Right. And sooner or later was, uh, was that the first uh, collaboration outside of sounds with, um, with Pete Milligan? Um, no, uh, Freakwave was. Right. Okay. And Brett, uh, Ewins? Yeah. Sadly, Brett passed away a few months ago. Um, but he was, uh, the third soul involved yeah. in the the strange days comic and that whole part of um you know we were just that part of the the what's known as the british invasion the yeah. revolution in comics that happened a lot of the attention went to alan moore frank miller at the time and you know they were great works of art they did and mm-hmm. um but as the dust has settled there's all the sort of if you like the people bringing up the rear like myself and Pete yeah. milligan and brett with strange days paradox skin and our, our contribution now has been acknowledged as well which is terrific yeah, it's always been um, kind of a, a stuck in my craw that uh, Shade didn't get the um, the acclaim that um, Sandman did in its time. Yeah. And of course, now I think that uh, one of the most requested 
uh, Omnibus at DC at Vertigo when they were starting to package together all these series was Shade the Changing Man. Mm-hmm. Um, and what made it a difficult thing to do was just how long the series ran. Right. That it was a 75-issue right. series right. and one of the best written things on the newsstand for that entire time. Um, but talking about Brett now, um, Brett had also gone to, to Chelsea with you. No, Brett went to Goldsmiths in the London oh, Goldsmiths. with, with uh, Pete Milligan. That's, right. I got to meet Pete Milligan through Brett. Yeah, oh, wow. And, we, and then we formed, you know, we were very like... Uh, we want. We saw comics much more like music, and we wanted to form, if you like, a comics collective, like a comic band, if you see what I mean. Right, right. Well, that's a good place to um, to hold off as we go and uh, pay some bills with a little bit of advertisement here. So we're going to be coming back in just a moment with the incredible Brenda McCarthy on the Pod Sequentialism podcast. Hey guys, it's Briars. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Meltthology. Meltthology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works. Show up at the Melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9.30 p.m., we'll collect all of the art and $3 for printing costs. When you come to the next month's comics jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltthology contributors get 10% off their Meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at Meltthology on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck. And that is at Melt underscore Thology. And we're back. You are listening to Pod Sequentialism. I'm Matt Kennedy. I'm your host. We are here with Brendan McCarthy, the writer of, co-writer of Mad Max Fury Road, creator of Freakwave, Paradox, Rogan Gosh, Skin, which I think we're going to talk about next, and uh, greatly contributed to the redesign of Shade the Changing Man, as well as the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in their first film. And uh, we'll also talk a little bit about Brennan's contribution to CGI animation, uh, being on the cutting edge of that. So welcome back, Brennan. Hi, Matt. So Skin, um, which was... I don't even know how to describe it to people who don't know what it is. Um, the easy, the easy paragraph, the uh, the the Twitter description would be a 15-year-old thalidomide baby skinhead in Britain. Yeah, you're kind of getting there. I think uh, I think um, in British culture, skinheads occupy a slightly different uh, point of view or are looked at differently than they would be over here. Over here, they're seen purely as sort of shaven-headed Ku Klux Klan racists. Right. I don't think there's any other version of them. Right. Whereas uh, in the UK, the skinheads started off as a kind of, uh, as something that derived from West Indian rude boy music, ska music, and and the, the particular sartorial style uh, of very sharply pressed trousers and boots and things like that, which was all the West Indian rude boy look. Mm-hmm. Um, so it actually grew out of a black movement and it fused, and it was uh, a sort of an outgrowth of the mods, the mods right. were, in England, the UK, they were a sharper version of hippies. Hippies were all sort of, t- you know, sort of scruffy jeans. Mods yeah. were all sharply dressed, nice polished shoes, all that sort of stuff. The so who my generation era. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. A quadrophenia. Yeah. So if you take quadrophenia and you mix it up with some West, West Indian Caribbean black influence, you get skinheads. Wow. Uh, and later on that, you know, within a very short time, are you talking about a, a couple of years, the right wing move into the skinheads and they become then more connected to football violence and right. all that sort of stuff. You know? Yeah, the footy violence and yeah. the, the boots and the braces. Yeah, so that's just to place the context of uh, skin itself. And um, uh, at the, when, when I was born, uh, there was a drug put on the market to stop morning sickness called thalidomide. Many women uh, around my mother's age would, would have taken it. Thankfully, she didn't. But many children born from mothers who took that thalidomide drug were severely and grossly deformed. Um, and the most notable deformity was something called fossamelia, which was a shortening of the limbs. So they just had arms sticking out the side of their shoulders. So um, when I was growing up, I saw this uh, young guy who was about 14, 15, shaved head, skinhead, but he was a thalidomide. That's what they call them, thalidomide babies. They, they, so if somebody was a thalidomide, that usually meant they had fossamelia the uh, seal limb, as it's called. Right. So uh, I, used to, I used to see this guy walking around the place for a while, uh, this skinhead who was a thalidomide, and I just thought, what's his story? I mean, what's it like to be a teenage kid growing up as a thalidomide and you feel really angry and you're outraged by what's happened to you and you're a skinhead? 
how do I can I can I kind of contrast the, the violence of that that this young teenager is going to sort of perpetrate through vandalism and fighting with the corporate violence that puts out an untested drug and deforms a generation of children and um so that that seemed to be an interesting fusion and dynamic. And um, when I spoke to Pete Milligan about it, he, you know, we talked about right how we we're going to write it, and we thought it's very important that we didn't write it as a, you know, noble disabled young boy who writes poetry is saved by his, you know, whatever, just right. to, just to make it bourgeois and just completely um, fillet it, if you like. Throw the what, dandy out the door on yeah. this one. Yeah, we just thought let's just do him as a fourteen-year-old working-class skinhead, and let's not, you know. Put, put talcum powder on him. Let's let's do it for real. So hence it just started off with how fourteen year old English skinhead speak and his morality and what he would consider worth doing or not worth doing. So because we showed a disabled person not as a victim but as a, a, an avenging angry person who wants some moral uh, res, restoration to happen, uh, that caused a lot caused a lot of outrage. Not with disabled people, but with proselytizers for disabled right. charities, etc. Right. Well-meaning, sort of white type of, uh, you know, that, those kinds of people. Waspy conservatives. Exactly, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And um, what we had a great asset in a punk rock drummer who was a thalidomide, a guy called Matt, who came out and really defended the comic when it was banned by the trade union. Printers refused to print it. People refused to distribute it. Book publisher wouldn't even look at the pictures to it. It, it, it it acquired this reputation of being so outrageously at, lacking in taste that nobody you know in the newly burgeoning graphic novels market could be seen to touch it in an era of some really severe political correctness yes exactly yeah. oh well you know but nothing compared to today right um but uh so it was quite interesting having this 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 comic we're trying to get out our baby if you like yeah. <laughs> nobody will take it and um it, it became quite bizarre you'd get all these advocates for the graphic novel like penguin books standing up saying we'll take it and then two days later sending it back to us saying no way and then they read it yeah <laughs> yeah but the thing about it is when it finally got published by kevin eastman who did uh um the teenage mutant ninja turtles you know, and was and was fl fully loaded with lots of money because of the success of it. Because mm. I'd worked on the movie with him, he just said, "Listen, I'll publish it. I'm, I'm setting up a new publishing company, and if I have to fight a court case, I'll do it." Mm -hmm. And so, suddenly, with his financial muscle, we decided to go for it. And when it came out, it was universally applauded, and mm. nobody objected. Yeah, it's funny how things can get banned before anybody yeah. sees them, oh, and then silly. once they see them, it, it's yeah. it's it's understood and accepted. And also, as a as a as a working artist, you know, having something banned, it's a great talk show host kind of, you know, anecdote. Yeah, but. It just means you don't get paid for about three years, <laughs> yeah. for about three months worth of work. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. And it was, an, it was an interesting size. I remember when it came out, it wasn't mm. um, in a comic book type format. It was a bit wider and taller. And there was nothing else like it on the market. When you look at what was happening in comics at the time, and even the cutting edge comics, mm. if you take a look at, say, you know, you talked about Frank Miller, you talked about Alan Moore. Um, even if you look at Watchmen or... Um, Killing Joke or any of the, the more lauded Alan Moore works from that particular era. And before you get off into um, his later more superhero-centric um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen stuff, uh, a comic like Skin was inconceivable. The the closest twin would have to be, and this wouldn't be no twin, of course, it'd be maybe a, um, uh, the bastard progeny of something like Mouse. Hmm. That um, you really have to go back to that other offspring of the '70s, the, um, the underground comic, and and then the comics that kind of took root after that. People telling really different types of stories. Hmm. And Miles, of course, was was such a success because it it takes you know the concentration camps and it it makes an allegory with um, with animals, but doesn't pull its punches. And here, only really about. 14, 12 or 14 years later, you have a comic where it's not representational. It is exactly on the surface what it is, and yet makes that statement that you talk about, that mm. it's like, hey, corporations versus this perceived um, um, deformity. Mm. And uh, it's, it's, it's really kind of breathtaking. I remember when that came out and Tundra finally published it, it came with quite a bit of, of um, advance um, 
well, not necessarily praise and not necessarily scorn, but a, a lot of uh, a lot of conversation, yeah. And everybody that finally got their hands on it was really blown away with it, and and even the color. Now, people who were used to comics before they really transitioned fully into graphic novels, and of course, the early graphic novels were really bound comics. So you still had either that newsprint turned to Baxter, slightly more expensive paper. But the whole color process, there's a very spray paint look to skin, which had never existed in comics before. Um, I'm sort of amazed that with the advent of street art and spray can art and graffiti art hitting what I think is probably its logical high point right about now with artists like Retina Mm. and... um, Certainly, um, Shepard Fairey and people like that. Shepard, of course, is more of a weed paste guy. But um, because spray can is such a big thing, I'm amazed that this new generation of more hip-hop-inspired than punk-inspired artists and who are now fine, you know, fine artists who are showing in galleries who are using this medium haven't just really wrapped their arms around skin and championed it Hmm. because it was also, I think, the first comic book to feature a character with a spray can on the cover. Right. You know, and so I think as we look back at these things and we see the, um, that, uh, that things aren't necessarily so quaint as they are so prophetic. Right. And so um, after Skin, it was, th- there were projects here and there, but it seemed like you had kind of gone entirely into entertainment as your, your primary motivator. Is that true? Um, well, what happened after um, a, a, a really good run of work I, with myself and Pete Milligan, we'd, we'd done the classic Trilli- Strange Days comics. We then did Rogan Gosh, sort of a Bolly, you know, pre-hipster Bollywood Indian yeah. thing. Um, we had Skin, uh, that take ages to come out, and I was doing the shade covers, the, yeah. uh, all that stuff was happening. Well, let's not forget there's two Eisner uh, Award nominations in there for your, oh, for your cover yeah, work on whatever. Shade. Yeah, oh, good. <laughs> yeah there, was, there was some really great... I was really pleased with some of those covers. Mm-hmm. But the, the main thing was that um, what ha- started to happen is that image comics started to come in and suddenly yeah. all these, you know, like deluxe silver platinum covers embossed with, you know, Todd McFarlane's underpants or something yeah. but were selling a million. Yeah. And it was like... Um, Disco had come in after punk or something. It felt like a different, a completely different mindset. Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee, all those guys were to me the polar opposite of what I was about. Yeah. In that they were, you know, I didn't feel they were particularly content based creators. They were much more like Michael Bay kind of creators. Yeah. I splash mean, page, splash yeah, page. Yeah, character. I do admire what they eventually did by leaving Marvel and setting up Image Comics and yeah. all that stuff. I really take my hat off to them. They were great. But what they were about, just the kind of sub, the subject matter, didn't interest me in the slightest. Yeah. And I could see that the basically the, that era of my stuff was over. Yeah. You know, just like the punk era was finished and in came something else. Yeah. So that era of the British invasion was finished. And it just so happened at that time, I got approached by a, a, a pop video director who I'd, go on to, who I'd then go on to do a lot more work with called Steve Barron, who was quite an innovative guy. He did a lot of the classic pop videos of the 80s and early 90s. Michael Jackson's Billie Jean is not my lover. Take on me by Aha. Wow. You know that those clips, but they all a lot of these things reference graphic arts and comics yeah. and stuff. And he was very into comics. So he said to me, "Listen, um, the guys who have just done this Sting video for um, uh, what was it? It was I want my MTV. It was with um, um, Mark Knopfler's band." Um, Dire Straits. Dire Straits. Right. They did a. They did a. I want my MTV, yeah. and it was this very money simple, for nothing. Yeah, money for nothing. And they had this very simple, com- blocked out computer graphics thing going on with these two guys working in a warehouse. The guys who had done that, the animators of that, had this idea for a TV series. But and Steve Brown said to me, "Would you have a look at this and see what you think?" Now the mm. designs they had were really appalling, but I was very interested in this thing called CGI, computer generated images, yeah. which nobody had heard of before. Right. The only time you saw it was, was on spinning sports logos at the yeah. beginning of TV shows. That's how those guys learnt their craft. Yeah. So they'd put together this little um, short thing, you know, of about thirty seconds, and so. Um, I said, I threw out all their designs, redesigned it all. It was still called Reboot, but then I put a guy with blue skin and chrome dreadlocks and Mm -hmm. made it really cool. And um, we then took this little piece of footage to ABC in America, Mm -hmm. and they said, okay, we don't know what this is. They'd say, like, CGI, what's CGI? It was was literally like that. And we said, well, it's interesting in this show, you know, they open up windows and inside of windows are another world. And they said, well, what's a window? It was it was before computers became very yeah. ubiquitous, which slightly 
was to the detriment of the success of the show because it, it now it'd be much bigger. Anyway, it was the world's first long-form computer animation. ABC bankrolled it, as did a company in Canada called um, Youth TV, YTV. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I was the production designer on this, this TV series called Reboot. And at the time, it was really great. It really was. Now you look at it, it's very dated compared to, you know, Avatar or something. But at the time, the character of Bob, who was this blue-skinned, chrome-haired, chrome-dreadlocked, surfer skateboard guy Mm -hmm. um he was became quite an icon and was featured in lots of wired magazine and the early days of wired and all this stuff he just became that uh kind of icon of the incipient digital age when words like virtual reality and cyberspace were being dropped all the time yeah i remember in the early newsroom chat rooms um, yeah, you know, right. before AOL, wow. that you'd see the, those those early memes of Bob yeah. in in the chats, and it was because it was the only easy to access, well rendered, computer generated character mm. that you could find online. Yeah, and he looked cool. Yeah, and he was very cool looking, yeah. and yeah. <laughs> much to your credit. Yeah, and um, this is funny because um, in in our histories together. Um, we've we've bounced across each other um, in numerous incarnations over the years. Um, back about 25 years ago, um, Gaston, who is the owner of, of Meltdown Comics and Collectible, where we where we taped the show, um, and I were working at a different shop called Fantastic Store, and we right. started to embark on buying original comic book art. Right. And so the two of us bought cover to cover Shade the Changing Man number 22. Oh, wow. And so that I, I kept the final page, which is I still have in my collection. It was included in the Pop Sequentialism exhibition, helped actually spearhead the time frame that I was going to develop when, mm. when we did the project. But um, one of the companies I was at when I worked in entertainment was called Liberation Entertainment. And we had purchased Reboot Home Video Rights oh. in the UK and the US, but the company was dissolved and the rights were sold off before we got to release anything hmm. but we had consolidated seasons one and two which season two took a very long time to come out i think it came out years after season four even had been released on oh. on dvd and i think shout factory put out a box set of everything very recently but it's funny that i didn't realize until after we were into the materials and working on extra feature materials that i saw your name i'm like wait a minute that that can't be the same guy that can't be that can't be the shade the changing man guy that can't be the freak wave guy and i'm like it's got to be it's got to be the same guy and then um and then meeting again years later through howard hallis hmm. who was an artist that we exhibited at lolus de jesus um, which is a gallery that i run in, in los angeles and um, he he mentioned that that you had been friends, were working on some Doctor Strange stuff, and I'm like, oh, of course, Brendan McCarthy, yeah, you know, one of the all time greats. It's like, uh, you know, uh, if there's the dream team, if there's the 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 best team of of baseball or the best basketball team, um, certainly that the British invasion, the writers that came in and when I think of like, you know, okay, who are you going to put third and fourth? You know, it's like, it's easy to put up at bat, you know, your Neil Gaiman's. It's easy to put up for bat um, Alan Moore, though you probably want him to be the catcher. You know, um, that, that you got to have, you got to leave room for Milgan and McCarthy. You got to talk about people like, like Brett Ewins, who I think is a, another really, um, is not as celebrated as he should be. His work on Bad Company was incredible. Um, his work on and Screamer and Screamer, yeah, just an it's incredible Sopranos series. Sopranos sci-fi. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it's funny now that um, I think the number one comic among um, probably most fans, um, Saga, which is being published through Image, is a sci-fi space opera. Hmm. And if you had told people. 15, 10, 20 years ago that the number one comic was going to be a slightly romantic um, space opera, you know, that that had been completely surprised. Mm. And yet you look back and certainly Rogan Gosh is is almost that. Um, and and other elements of, of comics that you've worked on with with Pete Milligan. But certainly you've also worked with Grant Morrison. And the work that you did with on Zenith with um with Grant Morrison was very reminiscent of the work you had done in Paradox, and Grant comes from a little bit later of that same scene, right? Yeah. Um, I, I haven't actually done a strip with Grant, but I did peripherally get involved in a Zenith by designing it. Yeah, and uh, but the very brilliant Steve Yole who drew it. Uh, I originally was I was think I had discussed with Grant the possibility of dr- drawing Zenith, mm-hmm. but um, 
I th- whatever commitments were happening with me, I couldn't do it. But the the, the right guy got to it in the end. Steve yeah. Yeol did a fantastic job. Also known for Sebastian O, um, had done yeah. uh, the New Adventures of Adolf Hitler. Yeah, another right. very controversial yeah, strip from right, Crisis. Yeah, yeah. yeah I love Steve's stuff. Yeah, he was great. And um, uh, so with Grant, I also designed the uh, Doom Patrol for him. Yes. Um, and uh, that was it, really. We did actually develop a couple of projects on and off. Mm-hmm with a view to doing them and but either he's been too busy or i was too busy and it never quite happened i mean we did a very interesting uh, feature film pitch called um what the hell was it called it was about people going in and out of mirrors um shatterland oh wow called. yeah and it was very strange because we were we, we were getting all these reflected versions of jfk and john lennon and elvis as characters their wow. reflections you know all this sort of stuff so it was quite a strange um story i mean it's something worth revisiting i think yeah that that is that is comic-con crack right there yeah I mean, yeah uh, no, bringing but, uh, together brenda mccarthy yeah, and, and, and but revisiting Grant maybe Morrison. do it as a graphic novel to lead to a movie because it was definitely an, an interesting uh, feature film idea um and uh, I, I i think we did actually do pitch something to 2000 ad called the return of the queer but they, they wouldn't <laughs> do it it was basically a, a sort of pro-gay character well, actually, what it was, it, it was a guy who was um, a fascist school teacher called Mr. Smith, mm-hmm. who ran the school for fools. And uh, what, what happened one day, this character called the queer turns up, mm-hmm. who wants to uh, talk to the boys, and the teacher won't let him in the school. And it's about this ridiculous fight between them. Wow. It was a very strange strip, you know, just satirizing, you know, anti-gay kind of authority things. Right, right. But... Um, they did. They turned it down. They said it was you know just too much for them. This is going back thirty years ago. So yeah, yeah. But that's the only full script I've actually got from Grant. And I do have. I do actually. I found the script to Mister Smith and the Queer just about three uh, three months ago. Actually, so I've I've got that. And um, I should probably talk to Grant about actually doing it. And then um, there is. A, I also have an issue of the Doom Patrol he wrote specially for me that I never got round to drawing. Wow. Some of the ideas in it he used in another story, but it still works as its own story. And I think it might be nice just to do it as a one-off. Right, you know, right. Vertigo anomaly. Right, right. You know, the Elseworld like Vertigo. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, we're going to dig into Vertigo a little bit uh, more when we come back after this break. Another uh, word from our sponsor. But um, stay tuned. We're going to have some more uh, amazing reminiscences and news of what's coming up with uh, Brenda McCarthy. So uh, stay tuned. Loot Crate. Comic-Con in a box. This is a monthly subscription service where, because of their iconic partners, each box is packed with exclusive items. There are different plans to suit your needs, and when you enter the promotional code MELTDOWN, you will get $3 off your crate. Check it out at LootCrate.com. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy, and we have, of course, as our guest, Mr. Brennan McCarthy, um, fresh off of a very successful opening of Mad Max Fury Road. If you haven't seen it, get out there and see it. See it in 3D, see it in 2D, see it however you can see it, because it is mind-blowing. And um, before we get to Mad Max, which is an amazing story of a very long and production process and, uh, and project, we're going to talk a little bit about the birth of Vertigo Comics and the role that uh, Brennan and Pete Milligan and other writers of that same scene that uh, from which he emerged had and affected the entire comic industry from that point forward. So, um, Brennan, let's talk a little bit. You mentioned that you had helped with Grant Morrison redesigning the Doom Patrol characters. And um, I'm, I'm guessing this is around the same time that you were redesigning Shade for, for Pete. And this was before the Vertigo imprint existed. Now, these comics all later got the Vertigo um, label thrown onto them, but prior to that were just all just a different type of comic at a major publisher. What was it like and, and how did it come to be? Um. For me, that was the great. That was the getting towards the end of a period of great uh, excitement, creativity, and thrill. You know, just that being caught up in that whole comics revolution, the birth of the graphic novel. You know, the movement. You know, every other article in a newspaper or a magazine would be, "Wham, pow, smash!" Comics aren't for kids anymore. Yeah. You know that stuff. But it was getting past that, which was good. It was now people were actually starting to get graphic novels as 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 things unto themselves so um 
the novelty of comics not being for kids was wearing off and now graphic novels are starting to get established. Um, we definitely sort of, if you're British and you're in comics at that time, you kind of ruled the roost. Yeah. You know, a lot of our American uh, creators were getting sort of mighty pissed off with the Brits. Um, and anyway, at that time, there was a time when Karen Berger uh, came over to London for a, for a comic convention, and that's the, the year when she signed up everybody, where Neil Gaiman pitched his Sandman, where Grant pitched his Doom Patrol, me and Pete pitched um, Shade, um, and everybody scored a comic series. Yeah. They just want... It was great. Um also, they were buying stuff up that had already been published or wouldn't be widely known in America. So when they saw um, Rogan Gosh, uh, which was our um, Indian, sci-fi East Indian uh, story, uh, Karen wanted to produce it as a one-shot right. uh, and collect it to a graphic novel. So that was terrific being published by Vertigo, and they did a beautiful job of uh, Rogan Gosh. And I can't recommend enough to fans of Saga that they, they pick up the series. It's... Um... It's just fantastic. It's very um, eye-opening and mind-expanding in a way that I think you might appreciate. Thanks, uh, Matt. It's um, it's definitely our most philosophical uh, comic, and um, it was written with multiple story points of view. So um, Pete Milligan had a strong fascination with James Joyce, and uh, he, he kind of, you know, he just let it roll on uh, Rogan Gosh. So the narrative of the story isn't from one point of view. It's from about five different characters' point of view. Neither one do we editorialize as the one true point of view. Mm. We just allow the story to tell itself. It's a, you know, it's an interesting experience. It is, it's a bit experimental, but just see it as something like the film by Nicholas Roeg, Performance. Yeah, performance. If you see it as something around that kind of area, you'll probably get where we're coming from. Yeah. Performance as Finnegan's Wake in a Bollywood musical. Exactly. You, well, <laughs> I can't say anything better than that, Pat. That's really good, Matt. Yeah. Um, so um, that was so that was the beginning of Vertigo. I was doing the covers for um, Shade the Changing Man. I was designing Doom Patrol for Grant Morrison. Rogan Gosh was coming out. Um, um, I got offered sort of lots of stuff around that time, but um, I was starting to, as I say, just it feel it felt like comics was peaking for me. Mm-hmm. And within a year, I would have been gone on to computer animation. And you got to understand, when I saw computer animation, I knew it was the future. Yeah. And I had to be in on it. It felt like the beginning of the comics revolution again. Yeah. And this time it was going to be uh, in animation. Yeah. And it happened. You know, I knew it was going to We all, you know, nobody else kind of believed us. I guess John Lasseter was out there putting together a Toy Story at the same time. He knew. Yeah. Um, but... Um, that was an ama- That was a great time, and not 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 many people sort of understand the early days of computer animation. But it was really great to be in on right at the beginning of that. The sad thing about computer animation for me is that it didn't lead to a load of interesting, different type of stuff. It led to lots of the same kind of stuff. Big yeah. family entertainment that costs a hundred million dollars to make. Yeah, um, that's okay. You know, it's fine. That's Hollywood. But it would have been nice to have seen some more peripheral type of thing. You know, you saw a little bit of it with the Matrix short films and yeah. things like that, but generally not not enough, I think. Yeah, Animatrix. It's it's funny that, the again, when you, you think of CGI now, you don't think of how often it's used, not obviously, right. that um, with Japanese films use a lot of computer animation, but it looks like traditional animation. Mm. It mm. seems like there's been mm. a great disconnect in Hollywood between yeah. these two things that... There's a feeling that it had to be either, or for a time, I don't know that there's much um, 2D animation being done anywhere mm. at, at, on the planet at all, but certainly for a long time there was a, a great separation, a chasm between camps that believed that animation was this um, very Walt Disney two-dimensional thing and animation was this this new um, computer-generated um, different point of view, different plane of thinking um, idea. And I completely agree that, you know, you you first saw things like um, Mindscape um, coming out, these little test, um, not quite feature, Mm. uh, home video, Laserdisc, I think, originally releases. And they were definitely an eye-opener, but it seemed to be geared only for people who are interested in computers, mm. that there wasn't a, a feeling that um, the general public were going to be able to 
to palette this. And so it's interesting to me that you have this camp at CalArts, you know, Lassiter and Bird and, and that whole room, right. and, uh, which is referenced in all of the, the Pixar films. They, they, they run the room number as a sort of Easter egg. And then in Chelsea, you know, that you've got um, uh, people like you and people like um, Steve Barron is also Irish. Yeah. And, um, and thinking about, well, hey, this is, this is the edge of the future. How do we make this work? And I think that the, the golden moment for most people was actually in Terminator 2 when they saw the trailer and they saw what T-1000 could be that Hollywood said, oh, okay, that's what CGI is. This I can wrap my hands around. Let's do this. And you're right. It then became relegated strictly to blockbusters. But um, moving forward from there, we're going to talk about probably the longest film production that I've ever heard of um, with um, Mad Max Fury Road. Now, now this project goes back to the 90s? Yeah, 1997 is when I first uh, started talking to George about um, a new Mad Max movie. Wow. And then, now that would have been even still a good 11 years after the, um, the last sequel. Um, Which would have been Thunderdome? Is that 86, 87? I think Thunderdome is 85. Oh, okay. So you're talking about a dozen years later yeah. already. Yeah. And so at that point in Hollywood, people might have been thinking, okay, well, it's been a long time. Is the time now? Are we too late or are we too soon? And so you get together and you start talking about big picture ideas. Hmm. And what what was that like? That was terrific because uh, George Miller is one of my um uh, you know, all-time great directors. And he, he's been strangely under the radar for most of his career. And I've always thought he was exceptionally good. Yeah. Um, akin, a sort of fusion of Spielberg, Terry Gilliam and David Lynch. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a disturbing quality in George's work. There's also a strong surrealist streak. But there's, and there's also that kind of Hollywood um, sensibility, sentimentality element to, to a degree. Not as much as Spielberg, but mm. it's there. A little Capra-esque uh, yeah. um, touch in there every once in a yeah, while. And you, and you see that at its most beautifully done in Babe. Yeah, and yeah. Babe too, which is incredibly dark <clears throat> and incredibly beautiful. And yeah. when, you, when I saw that film, I think that really made it click. I mean, I had known after seeing Babe, I saw George Miller's name on it, and I think I thought, oh, is this the same guy mm. that did The Road Warrior? Know. Yeah. You know, and uh, certainly he's done Happy Feet, I believe, too. And so he's got these two tracks where he's, he's able to do these these incredibly literate children's films that don't speak down to kids mm. that adults can enjoy. And he's got this incredibly visceral, possibly the greatest action movie sensibility of, of any director who's ever lived. Right. Yep. And um, I think it's it's amazing that, that the two of you found each other to mm. come together on this. But George also didn't start directing until late in life, right? Um, no, he was pretty young. He was, he was um, a, a qualified medical doctor and was working in an accident and emergency room. Wow. Which inspired, as all the mangled bodies of teenagers in car wrecks would keep being brought yeah. in through into his hospital, that's kind of what inspired Mad Max. Wow. And that's a, a very similar sensibility, I think, to Peter Weir's The Cars at A Paris yeah. uh, in, a, in a very different art house mm. Um, mm. Uh, connotation. And you, you mentioned that, yeah, these two great Ausploitation directors, uh, both of whom have been nominated for Oscars. Right. And, um, you know, Babe, of course, being nominated for Best Picture, uh, I I believe was that the same year as uh, Pulp, uh, the year after Pulp Fiction. Yeah, and uh, um, Happy Feet, of course, winning the Oscar. Yes, the first animated. animated film wins an Oscar. That's amazing. Yeah, and so this this journey starts in in the eighties, and it starts to take shape in the form of a, probably a first draft script. Well, um, it took. I met George in say in nineteen ninety seven, and we had a you know one of those kind of conversations where you really just unload on somebody you know all these years of mm -hmm. thinking about their work. So, you know, we had an intelligent conversation about George's work, about Mad Max, the Mad Max world, mm -hmm. you know, what what each movie was, why Thunderdome, in a way, was a disappointment. And, yeah. and really, if ever there was another Mad Max film, George, mm -hmm. um, it ought to really, you know, not atone for Thunderdome, <laughs> but, but actually acknowledge Road Warrior and, if you like, be the true sequel. And nudge, nudge, wink, yeah. wink. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was very, you know, George, come on, let's get another Mad Max film out of you, please. Yeah. I, I said, you know, I'll pay $10 to see a brand new Mad Max film yeah. as long as it's really good, George. And I'll say this, too, that a lot of people, and I had, of course, seen um, The Road Warrior, I think, in the drive-in mm. in, in the early 80s. It was not on its initial release, but on the second release right, when it right. came back to the drive-ins. And they ran... 
Mad Max and The Road Warrior together and saw them both. And then at that time, Road uh, Mad Max, the first film, was hitting um, the local... UHF stations in mm. in Boston where I grew oh, up, wow. and so we were able to see this, um, and then video was coming out. Uh, people had v- VCRs in almost every home in the early '80s, so it really started to acquire this reputation. So I think that there are people who saw Road Warrior and then saw Thunderdome and were disappointed, mm. but I think that people who saw Thunderdome who hadn't seen Road Warrior really loved it. Yeah, that's right. Because it's still a great movie. Yeah, it's so just it's, a, it's yeah. a strange follow-up to, to Road yeah. Warrior in some ways. Yes, and um, what's interesting about Thunderdome is that, you know, things like uh, two men enter, one man leave yeah. has entered kind of the public... Uh, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's beyond like Thunderdome. Guys. That's part of the... So actually, in a strange way, Thunderdome penetrated into the public. Yeah. A lot more than the other films, although the whole Mad Max world, if you sort of, you know, I just picked up the magazine The Economist the other day. Yeah. And it said, you know, just in its editorial, if we're not to avoid a Mad Max world, we need to, you know, <laughs> keep a look on global warming or something yeah. like that. But that's just become part of the yeah. conversation. And, and of course, it, it kicked off an entire genre of film in Italy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hilarious. Know, the Mad it's Max ripoff films, yeah, the, the Italian apocalypse yeah. films are hilarious. Right. You know, yeah. uh, the, uh, and, you know, there's, Aside from being built on John Carpenter's Escape from New York and yeah, and on right. on George's Road Warrior films, you've got this incredible post-apocalyptic mm. uh, genre. Yeah. So the um, you have a conversation with with this this filmmaker, and you start to exchange ideas, and yeah. then you start setting up the possibility to work together. And so when does this really start to take shape? And like you know what, this project's gonna this is gonna happen. Well, um, when we initially met, and you know I talked about Mad Max with George, and then he asked me about computer animation and all that stuff, which was new, and he wanted to get a handle on it. He mm-hmm. was very interested in it. Um, we had a, then a very interesting chat about Mad Max and the possibility of another movie. And then, you know, the meeting was over, and uh, a few months later I got a call from George in Sydney saying, would you like to come to Sydney, kick around some ideas for a new Mad Max film, as I've been thinking about some stuff, and I think I've got a really good idea here. Wow. So uh, I, fl- I flew over there, and... Um, we just sort of, end, I ended up working for a year with him in what we call the Mad Max room, which was yeah. this big room in this. He's got this beautiful Art Deco studio in um, Sydney where he works from. And we just commandeered the top half of it, gradually started filling it up with drawings, ideas. Uh, George had a core idea for a story. And then I um, started to add to little bits here and there and all the rest of it. And mm-hmm. um Gradually, it fleshed out, and after a, a, sort of nearly, pretty much nearly a year, we um, we actually had a finished. I would call it a manifesto, a kind of script with with drawings, with notes about you know things like you know remember to look at Sex Pistols videos and yeah. you know casting ideas, and it was just a, a very interesting document, which was a kind of script bible for the, what we were going to then do, which was knuckle down in earnest to um, define the movie through storyboarding right and then we and then two other storyboard guys were hired very good Australian board guys called Mark Sexton and Peter Pound and um, uh, between us all we then started um, myself and George would work the shots out and Peter and Mark would then render the frames and then gradually George would keep editing the movie through the storyboard frame so it was an incredible and it was all one giant feedback loop um, where a script was also being written at the same time, inserted amongst the drawings. So wow. we ended up with a, something like a 300-page comic book of Mad Max, and that's what got sent out to the actors and studios. Right. We're going to take a break here, our last break, before we head into the um, the final part of the podcast. And uh, we're going to really dig into uh, Mad Max Fury Road with uh, Brenda McCarthy after the word from our sponsors. Melt you. The school at Meltdown, where they teach you the skills to make comic books. Some of the current classes include creating comics, drawing comics for kids, and the art of inking. Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to meltcomics.com and enroll now. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm the host, Matt Kennedy. Uh, we have with us today Brennan McCarthy, and we're talking about Mad Max Fury Road. So we were just talking about how the script came together um, and it became this very all-encompassing 
uh, manifesto script bible and then you got into writing out a comic book a graphic novel that was uh, storyboarded of, of what the film would be to send to the actors now when this was first in development there was still very much the idea that mel gibson was going to reprise the role of max and so walk us through what happened between i guess this is pre-2001 and um and 2015 when the film finally gets released okay um well um when I was involved in Mad Max, I was involved on and off over uh, over a, f- a few years, and um, the version that I wrote and designed was a Mel Gibson movie. Mm-hmm. So it was the fourth film in the Mel Gibson series called Mad Max, right? And it was called Fury Road, and mm-hmm. it featured Mel Gibson. And in one of the greatest moments of my life, uh, Mel Gibson flew into Australia, you know, secretly, and came into the George's studio. To, to view the presentation of Fury Road, which consisted of about 3,000 storyboards and loads of concept art. Uh, just, Mel knew nothing about it. Mm-hmm. And so we brought him in, and George and Mel took about three hours and went through the entire sequence of storyboards. And um, I was in the room with them and watched what how Mel reacted to each scene. I was thinking, I wonder how he's going to... Oh, good, he liked that bit and all the rest of it. And... Watching George Miller take Mel Gibson through Mad Max 4 was a great moment. Wow. It was just like a really fantastic moment of pop culture. And know? he was certainly one of the, the biggest stars on the planet at this time. At that time, time yeah. yeah. At that time, uh, you know, and, you know, it seemed, and it was really like, will he like it enough to want to do it? Right. And anyway, he did. He said, you know, and also I had a chance to chat with him about all sorts of stuff when he was there, which is great. So I was able to completely you know, drill him on stuff like he used to have the rights to Patrick McGoohan's The Prisoner. I know that, yeah. He was yeah. going to play the McGoohan role. You know, yeah. this is going back 25 years ago. I, I read that that script when he that was He also had around. the rights to Brett Ewins and Pete Milligan's Johnny Nemo. Wow. And was going to shave his head and <laughs> play Nemo. Wow. Which would have been amazing. So I just, I kept saying, what the hell happened to all these amazing projects? Oh, well, that couldn't, we couldn't do that because of that reason. And Oh, God. Yeah. Anyway, the main thing was he agreed to do Mad Max and... Uh, and it, everything was rolling along. And um, what happened was 9-11 happened, which then the American dollar lost X amount of value, which then meant you had lost X amount of value off your budget. Right. We had to cut the budgets down. That became a nightmare. Then the Australian government, who was putting up money, part funding the film, there's a change of government and that fell down. Yeah. So suddenly the whole production just fell apart. Mel hangs on for as long as he can and then has to move on and do his other stuff. He's out of it. Yeah. So then the film is just floating. Heath Ledger is then being looked at as a possible new Mad Max. Wow. Then he dies. Yeah. Then the film is floating around and gradually Georgia lights on Tom Hardy after seeing Bronson. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and I think for George, Tom had the requisite amount of sort of animals, sort of uh, magnetism or whatever you want to say it. But there's he's got that feral quality that possibly Mel Gibson and... Uh, would have had as well. Was there a point when Russell Crowe was involved? No. 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 And also, I haven't been closely involved in Mad Max for about 10 years. I've been mm-hmm. aware of it, but my actual time working, which is writing the draft, which lasted for about 10 years. Right. And then a new writer came on about five years ago when Tom Hardy was cast. Mm-hmm. Nico Lutheris, Lutheric, sorry. And um, uh, Nico then calibrated the script to fit Tom Hardy. Right. Because there were moments I'd written with George which Mel Gibson, you know Mel Gibson can do them because he has the authority of the previous three three movies to carry off a certain movie a moment that may just be a look. Right. But Tom Hardy won't be able to do it because he just hasn't got that it's longevity. Not, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, the, the elastic right. face and the yeah, other well, things. Well, yeah. you just have to accept that you've got this actor and you have to then rewrite it right. in, in places for that actor to, to work for him. Right. And with Tom Hardy, it's interesting. You've you've got an actor who's um, established himself with a certain amount of um, the genre film base with uh, with his various projects and very different types of projects. Um, Tom is also um, great fodder for the tabloids, especially the British tabloids, who who love every time he opens his mouth. Um, and what's interesting in having him be Mad Max is it. For me, it changes the whole context of the opening scene. Like you feel like okay, you know. If if Mel if Mel Gibson were Mad Max and and um, 
I don't think there's any spoilers here because the the opening of the film is um, Max being captured and the rest of the film follows his escape and in the redemption of many characters. But I I don't think that you would think that um, Mel Gibson was possibly violated by his male captors where you get the sense possibly that this probably happened to Tom Hardy in this film and Tom Hardy has a whole very different sensibility of almost like prison tough guy violence and um, certainly with um, with the film that you mentioned that had brought him to the attention of George Miller Bronson you've got this this thuggish you know um, just prison criminal career criminal and there's a certain vibe of that to Tom in any role where it shows him bulked up. Hmm. You don't get that so much in um, in the um, Inception film, but in many of his other roles where you right. do see the physical presence that he has, he spends a lot of time staying in, in ridiculous shape. He's got, um, he's very muscular, but there's a certain kind of prison thug violent vibe to him that sort of like okay off screen anything could have just happened and it gives you a very different surprised um point of entry to the film and you're like and i think the idea is that you you sort of think even though you see uh, gibson go through quite a bit of hardship in the first three films and he does get captured and bad things happen but there's always that kind of you know wink of the eye i can get out of this the audience is never given the idea that that okay, this guy is probably going to walk away from this. It's, will this guy walk away from this? You know, what, so. yeah, what, what's the fate of these characters? Any one of these people could die at any moment. Mm-hmm. Like, you, it, it keeps you on the edge of your seat in that way. When I mentioned at the, at the top of the show that we're addressing a film with very big ideas, there are a lot of very big ideas, um, not the least of which it's great to have Toe Cutter back in a role which most people will not recognize him because of of the amount of prosthetics that he wears but um but that you've got the villain from the very first film coming back to be the villain in this movie and in in a very different character but that this idea of the addiction to water um, you know, that people are surviving on blood transfusions, um, that it, it gives a whole different sensibility, even from people who are familiar with the post-apocalyptic zombie world of Walking Dead or World War Z, that the idea of blood being such an important commodity, I don't think that's ever been addressed in, in any of the, um, the post-apocalyptic zombie films, that, yeah, blood is going to be a very valuable commodity, hmm. that um, the availability to medicines and things like that is always addressed but the more visceral elements are things that have escaped almost everybody until you come up to you and George and your ideas on this on this film. Well, uh, one of the things that was also interesting was seeing, you know, as predatory capitalism just preys and preys on stuff, in yeah. the end it turns its... When its last resource is the human body itself. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, you've got the breast milkers. Yep. You know, you've got the hair, you've got anything that yep. the body can produce, you know, fertilizer, anything. Yeah. I mean, there were things that we took out of the movie that we thought were too much. Um, that would surprise some people who've seen the film. Well, no, you had to. All right. Yeah. An example would be um, up at the top where all the green stuff is, Yeah. Uh, the green place, um, we had a load of grow bags which would have plants growing out of them. Right. But the grow bags were actually human corpses with the stomachs opened and with... Uh, Organs. Yeah, which would be mulched up into wow. a fertilized soil, which could then grow as well, you see. Wow. So... Even the corpses are used as grow bags for food. Um, you know, the mother's milk is used. Um, uh, blood, is, as you say, is used. Yeah. And, and in the case of uh, all the kids being born who are half-life, as they're referred to, yeah. um, part of our idea was um, that as most kids being born have got you develop leukemias in their sort of teens yeah. and die off. You're not getting... That's why they call half-lifers. I right. Mean, this isn't... This is our backstory that you don't really know, but right. you get the rea- the sense of that. You from, can tell it's there. Yeah, I mean, it's a yeah, very well-thought-out yeah. world. That's right. We did. We spent so long thinking this world out. And yeah. um, you then got the, the religious cult manufactured by the leader, uh, right. which is the um, uh, car cult. Yes. Um, so you've got all these things kind of playing together. That scene with Nux at the beginning with Slit where they're arguing over the blood bag and, uh, you know, if I get a boost of his blood, I can get crazy blood and die. He knows he's going to die. Just Fighting over die. the wheel. Yeah. 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 So if he can die gloriously on the Fury Road, 
that's a great death. It's a death. And because the film was conceived pre-9-11, mm-hmm. this isn't some sort of satire, strange enough, on, you know, Islamic extremism. Right. We actually were looking at um, uh, kamikaze pilots is what we studied. Right. Uh, we actually did want a suicide cult. Right. But the Islamic stuff wasn't really in, the, you know, it wasn't in consciousness then. Right. Uh, it's only after 9-11 that people suddenly started really getting onto that. Before that, we were looking at the kamikaze pilots in Japan, and they were a really interesting cult and how they, you know, for the Methamphetamine-fueled yeah, kamikaze the, pilots, the yes. Yeah, the emperor and what the emperor meant. You yeah. know, so we looked at all that stuff quite a lot. Um, I, I thought... Um, you know, that was quite well done, I thought. In, that came over quite nicely in Fury Road. That, I th- I'm surprised if there aren't already beautiful Chrome Forever tattoos yeah. appearing and all over all, the all nation. The, uh, you know, when people actually at the point of death spray their mouths with, silk, with Chrome yeah. spray. That was, uh, that, came, that was an idea that came from me based on when I was growing up uh, and all the Skinner thing yeah. you know, I, was t- I was talking about earlier. One of the things of teenagers always want to get high yeah. is that they would get cans of spray butane. Yep stick the butane against their teeth and let the the butane crystallize on their mouth wow so they would get a crystalline mouth but the the finer vapor of the butane they could inhale and then get the buzz so that came from i told it all about george and said why don't we just do it why don't we let them spray their mouths so that when we catch them in the sunlight often you'll see the movement of the spirit from the body as a light coming out of the mouth you've often seen that yeah uh in films and stuff or in literature so that's how we were able to con- to sort of visualize it, a, a kind of vehicular car-based metaphysics, if you see. Yeah, <laughs> which is very interesting. Insane, but, you, know, <laughs> you have to come up with it, though, and make it believable that these kids would spray their mouths. And at the point of death, they're illuminated. Yeah, which is uh, somewhat reminiscent of J.G. Ballard. Of course, it's you know. very Ballard. Yeah, yeah. Very, very Ballard. And, and you know, the other really great car crash movie yeah. in a very different way. Yeah. And um, the idea that uh, that fetishism mm. becomes uh, a, a political movement mm. in a way. Mm. So yeah, like I say, a lot of really really big ideas, and you can tell uh, that the that the characters have a lot more backstory than what is presented on screen. And that's why I'm really happy that. Um, and we've just seen this today. I, the first time I've ever seen it. I'm not sure if you had seen it before. The the art of Mad Max Fury Road book. I just saw it today. Yeah, which is beautiful. Yeah, it's really nice, isn't it? They did a very good job. Well done, Titan. Yeah, the um, it's it's just an amazing, amazing collection of the illustrations. It is complete illustrations. It's not if people are used to looking at, um, you know, kind of the um, the continuity drawings that that people put together for films. This is really like a graphic novel, like you said. It's very, very finished. Yeah, um, and also there was so much conceptual art done by me and other artists for this that uh, the Titan book can't possibly include all of it. Right. So. I've just um, uh, released my brand new website mm-hmm. a couple of days ago, and uh, if you want to, if you do want to see a lot of Mad Max concept art, uh, I've got a lot of more stuff than the Titan uh, book wow. on my own site. So that's artbrendan.com. Uh, if you want to go and have a look at that later that sounds amazing well I think I think we've pretty much wrapped this up and I really want to thank Brendan for being the first guest on Pod Sequentialism thanks Matt absolutely I'd love to have you back again and I, I hope that we we can talk about many of the other things that have uh, have been in our interest across the years mm. and uh, not the least of which is Fine Art Exhibition which you also do and you've got many other projects you've got the the Doctor Strange book that you had done with Marvel and you've got several other projects and I'm currently finishing up uh, my new graphic novel dream gang yes dark horse yes well again thank you so much and thanks for listening in uh we'll be back next week with another edition of pod sequentialism hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.